Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about taking sides. I'm going to spend some time today bringing inappropriate conversations back and looking at political bias and perspective and the ends versus means kind of approach that's behind that on really all sides of the political spectrum. But I feel like there's a little bit of explanation that probably makes sense right up front at the beginning of the show. Where have I been and what what is this gap between inappropriate conversations number 208 previously and this one number 209? And really, I kind of hinted at it when I was recording that episode that was released uh, literally just in time for April Fool's Day and Easter Sunday. And I knew then I was going to be releasing a show at the very beginning of April and probably not getting back on track until pretty late in May. And the reasons for that are numerous. It includes things like uh, preparing for a wedding, an out-of-town trip, a family member who was going through a significant surgery, and uh, friends of the family coming into town for a graduation. All of those major life events kind of happening in and around the same time over, call it a four or five week span. I'm now on the other side of things, and I realize that because of the way I've planned it, and only because of the way I planned this, I can still say that there has never been a month, going all the way back to March of 2010, when either inappropriate conversations or walk the earth or some combination of the two haven't released a show. I've been consistent in that respect, although I do acknowledge that here I'm barely making it into the month of May. And when you look back to April, it was right at the beginning of the month. This is probably the biggest gap in podcasting in all of those, call it eight years. But I am back and happy to be back and feel like I've got a little bit of house cleaning to do right up front. I won't do the normal things in terms of the website and uh, Twitter and Facebook and all that right now. I'll, I'll hit that perhaps at the end, if I can remember. Instead, what I want to talk about are other significant events that are coming up and things that I can announce for the first time now that I'm finally behind a microphone and podcasting again. I have paid registration, made flight and hotel arrangements to be in attendance for the New Orleans Podcasting Expo 2018 for Pride 48. Uh, I attended the last one, which was three years ago in 2015 in Las Vegas, and recorded Walk the Earth 30 there, and was pretty sure I was going to be able to attend the next one. It did take a few of these intervening weeks between the last show and this one to nail down the details and make that happen, but it's official. Deposits are paid, and we are on the way. This New Orleans event will be held at the Holiday Inn Superdome in New Orleans, uh, Friday, August 24th through Sunday, August 26th. I will be in at least the day before and leaving the morning after that. At least that's the plan for now. And because my wife and I have uh, relatives in town, we may be able, we're hopeful anyway, that we can add a couple of other participants along the way. We shall see. I don't know at this time whether I will be doing any recording. I will definitely be participating in the sense of being there and part of the audience, but it's too soon for me to know for sure whether there's anything in the trajectory of inappropriate conversations or walk the earth, which would coincide with making a recording live uh, on that on those particular dates. It worked out to me unexpectedly three years ago, 
And I think it'll settle itself at the last minute this time as well. I do know that I won't be participating in a streaming event. This is a just a particular hurdle that I haven't covered yet. So in those intervening years between my first recording live at Pride 48 and now, I have skipped the June streaming events, again, as a participant, while uh, I'll be there in the chat room and as a listener. This year, that June live streaming weekend is going to take place from Friday, June 22nd, through Sunday, June 24th. The times have yet to be made specific. The show lineups are going to come together here in the next couple of weeks. But it usually starts somewhere around 6 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 o'clock Eastern Time on Friday. And last year, they had a show that ran deep into the night between either Friday night and Saturday, I believe it was. And so you never know. It it could be, uh, from an Eastern Time perspective, a show series, uh, the schedule that runs pretty late into the night. But I did want to make that announcement right up front, that Pride 48 has two events this year, one in June, online and streaming, and one in August. So I've kind of explained where I've been and where I'm heading. And before I get into the topic today or the different drummer, I feel like it makes sense to maybe introduce a little bit of this from the perspective of current events. When I talk about taking sides, I'm not advocating for doing that. I realize that it's necessary and perhaps inevitable, so it's not really a criticism of the act of making these kinds of choices. But it's more about recognizing how regrettable it is that this either has to happen, I even say that with a question mark in my mouth, um, or if it does happen, we shouldn't be rushing to get there. We have become a very segregated society when it comes to things like political thought. And the entire point of inappropriate conversations runs in the exact opposite direction. It says that things like politics, sex, religion, popular culture should not be separated from each other. And if there's a difference of opinion, be that difference generational or just based on political perspective, experience, heaven forbid something like race, uh, that that to me is not in and of itself a good reason that segregation is actually a great evil. It is one of the biggest problems in our society. In fact, it's shocking, offensive, maddening, and saddening to me that our culture is perhaps more segregated now than at any point in my lifetime, and that the efforts from not not long after or long before my birth in terms of civil rights laws and voting rights laws have been undone here, either politically or judicially or culturally, just in the last five to ten years. We seem to be further back than we were when we started, in other words. So I don't feel like that's a good thing, and I want to actually be uh, an example, if I can, of someone who's extremely hesitant to run to one side or another. So what I want to describe as we work our way through this particular show is the problem, even perhaps the word I'll use I think is the absurdity, of looking at every single thing through our own personal tint of rose-colored glasses. And I think that's in some ways what led to what I'm going to describe as the myopia of 2016, the inability of some people to see things that were obviously false as false because they were reading them strictly through their own bias and their own perspective. I've had friends, and part of the reason I speak to this with with some degree of passion is that it does make me very sad to think that these are people that I know, people that I have, to one degree or another over my life, trusted. 
uh, extended family members, friends, mentors who have made these mistakes, who've been engaged, for example, in spreading false news and rumors about Hillary Clinton in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election having Parkinson's disease, and that being wrong on so many levels. At first, the symptomology wasn't really there. Uh, second, whatever credence the rumor that was being spread by opponents of Clinton, whatever credence it could have had would have come from very untoward sources. So either made up out of whole cloth and just some sort of attempt at a political hatchet job, and I even think that's problematic in that it presumes that somebody who is uh, high-functioning Parkinson's disease is somehow ineligible to serve their country. Now, maybe they would be, you know, you wouldn't want to you know, put them in charge of a heavy weapon and send them out in the infantry unit. But from a thought perspective, from a thought leadership perspective, uh, it's a little bit troublesome that somebody might suggest, well, hey, this person has, you know, type 1 diabetes, so they can't be present in the United States. Alzheimer's might be a different category, of course, but to me, the logic that this article that was shared with me a couple years ago, year and a half ago, on Hillary Clinton having Parkinson's was based on an allegation. The person was proudly boasting of the conclusion that he'd drawn because he had looked at hacked emails, hacked personal emails. And again, I don't know if any of this information is true or not, but if somebody like WikiLeaks did get a hold of the web search history of Hillary Clinton's private computer and found that she was asking questions related to Parkinson's and treatment for Parkinson's and drugs and drug interactions related to Parkinson's, to jump to the conclusion that that meant that she was personally dealing with this disease and not someone that she knew or someone that she'd met or someone that she otherwise cared about was highly irresponsible. And the basis for what they were reading and consuming should have in and of itself stopped them in their tracks. That they were, in essence, you know, taking the same kind of the outrage I would have heard from this friend if I had hacked into his computer and looked at his browsing history and jumped to unfounded conclusions based on whatever I might have supposed from what I found there and put it on Facebook, it would have been a friendship-ending outrage. And the problem I've got is, well, first, uh, what was the source? Was the source itself credible? We'll come back to that concept in a minute. And second, if you believe from the source that the information came from some sort of intellectual property theft, why did you proceed after that? And even if you did proceed after that, what would have led you to conclude that that meant that this person obviously has a debilitating ailment and therefore is disqualified to be considered for a serious run to be president of the United States? And I would say that one explanation for all that stuff is a problem I would describe as taking sides. Now, I could, and perhaps will in the course of this Inappropriate Conversations show, make some references that, that look to the other side of the political spectrum. That, just like I'm sure there are some people who are conservative friends of mine who are saying, well, yes, but the liberals do it too. Now, I'm going to make an argument that that's a great example of this flawed mentality of taking sides. Just because someone else did it, doesn't make it right for you to do it. And the argument that I've always made with my kids when they were growing up is the second you point your finger to justify your behavior at someone else and say, well, they did it too. Then the question becomes, well, did you know that it was wrong when they did it? Are you telling me they did it because of how outraged you are at how inappropriate their behavior was or is? And if that's the case, then it makes you wrong twice. Once, because you did it. 
and twice because you knew that it was wrong when you did it. It's always possible that that little brother or little sister you're pointing the finger at is just too young and immature and inexperienced to know better. They could be simply mistaken. But if you've seen them engage in mistaken behavior and taken judgment against that behavior because of how obviously wrong it is, and then chosen in some retaliatory fashion or through just acting up or acting out, done the same thing yourself, well, then you did it knowing it was wrong at the time you did it, which makes it a much more serious infraction. It is one of the reasons why I'm somewhat, at times, okay. In a hockey match, when the second player to commit the uh, the foul gets in more trouble or is the only one who gets seen and penalized, because re- we act like retaliation is not in, in and of itself wrong or a mistake. And I think that's one of the issues that we're seeing with some of the uh, sexual impropriety scandals that are happening out there in the sense of it's the retaliation that I think is in some ways catching some of these people and putting them in serious trouble. The people that I'm going to say even Fox News has chosen to deal with in a disciplinary way, it's probably more the acts of retaliation that have gotten them in trouble than the original event, which could, in the minds of some people, devolve into a he said, she said situation. So there is a problem with taking sides. And one of the common denominators I've seen, one of the things that brings out the ugliest and perhaps most extreme examples of taking sides is the links that people will go to to blame something which seems an obvious and easy point, a simple Occam's razor exercise to decide where the flaw or problem or fault lies. The extremes people will go to to find a way to deflect against that. And it, it all comes down to the notion of taking sides. If my perspective on gun ownership is more sacred to me than maybe any other relationship other than my wife, and therefore I protect it, maybe even as aggressively as I would even my kids or my home or my pets, if the unfettered right to own guns, not me, because I, of course, not violating the laws, not stalking anybody, not threatening anybody, but if I'm so obsessed with gun rights as a principle that I would say out of my mouth on the one hand, we've got to make sure that that we deal with mental health issues, but on the other hand, I want to make sure that all of those people with serious mental health issues can still own as many guns as they want and carry them around loaded in public if they want, because that is more important to me than anything else. It's what leads people in the aftermath of a recent shooting like the one in Santa Fe, Texas, near Houston, to blame exit doors and entrance doors as the problem rather than uh, toxic masculinity gone wrong and someone using borrowed and or stolen weaponry to murder more than just a handful of people and injure an equal number on top of that. And to do so in what apparently is some sort of uh, retaliatory judgment against a girl whose primary crime was saying no, and apparently saying no repeatedly to romantic overtures from the person who turned out to be a murderous killer. Or the desire of people to say, well, it's important for me that this not be a uh, just a white typical American kid committing, you know, crimes and murders. I, uh, I'm i assuming that most of the people on the right side of the political spectrum are really regretting the fact that this kid wasn't a refugee or a foreign exchange student or a person of color or something that, you know, doesn't look exactly like them. 
you know, or like them at that age, angsty 17, 18-year-old kid, that sort of thing, that we would go to the extreme of trying to find reasons why his victims are at fault for this rather than him. You go to the Parkland, Florida case. The, I know a lot of people, and I've remained in relationship with them online, so I still see what I would generously describe as the nonsense that they share online about this all coming down to bullying and that none of that Parkland stuff would have happened if people had just been nicer to that young man because it couldn't possibly be about the guns. That if a young man shows up to his high school or his former high school with uh, an arsenal of weapons and kills a number of people and shoots a number of more people, that it couldn't possibly be about his behavior itself, his toxic masculinity, his violent assertion of privilege, or his access and usage of the kind of weaponry that make it possible to do a lot more damage than you would do if you were simply acting out by picking a fist fight with somebody or you know angrily walking um, down the baseball field swinging your bat in the direction of the pitcher or the first baseman. I mean, um, by loading up with weapons, ammo, pipe bombs, allegedly, and other things, the the ability to create great damage is much higher. But in the paradigm of taking sides, it's amazing and disappointing just how far people will go to not acknowledge that. The notion that, well, if the school just only had just one way of coming in and out of the building, then everyone would have been safer. Ridiculous on its face. First, fire marshal would never go for that. And second, if you were truly trying to funnel students in and out of a very narrow set of entrances, and all it would take would be one or two shooters camped out at those points of access and creating a great deal of havoc. Of course, again, no fire marshal is going to permit that, but every exit door is a potential entrance. All you need is an accomplice. This notion that, well, it's the, it's the school architect's fault because there were too many entrances. Or it was this girl's fault. She set him off by turning him down. She should have just taken one for the team. This sort of mentality. And anymore, you could call that stuff out as ludicrous and ridiculous and absurd in the past and pretty much silence the nonsense in the conversation. I'm finding that doesn't work anywhere near as well as it used to. And it's because of the way people entrench their positions and take sides. It's not just people assuming a contrary position and uh, engaging in ad hominem tax that everyone who doesn't agree with them or uh, has assigned themselves to my tribe must be some sort of idiot or worse. But we've dug bunkers now. It's gotten a lot more entrenched than it used to be, such that people are so used to being inside an echo chamber that even to offer a genuine point of inquiry, a question where it's not an overture to a provocation, it's legitimately a question. What do you think would happen if the uh, if the school had a lot fewer entrances and exits to it? Is viewed as some sort of a shocking surprise that people aren't used to getting any pushback. Now, I've made mention in the past, and I'll mention it again here, that so far I've succeeded in maintaining a method of operation that I just don't unfriend people. And you can extend that concept to Twitter as well. It's part of the reason that I've managed carefully how many pieces of social media I'm willing to juggle, because to me the juggling act can be a little bit delicate. But it's also true that I, because I don't extend invitations, I don't 
I don't go out and assertively, positively friend people or invite people in, but I also don't kick them out. So if I know you well enough that there's some sort of online relationship, there's some sort of Facebook friendship, I'm not going to be the one that pulls the plug on that, no matter how, well, absurd your behavior may be online. I feel like just being the voice of reason in some conversations, well, I know for a fact that has led me to be unfriended by others. And I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that some people just, I'm not their cup of tea, which is ironic because, again, they were the ones who essentially reached out to me. So they must have at least initially assumed or remembered from college or high school that I might have been their cup of tea. But I try not to invite people into my nonsense. Anybody who's not equipped, uh, even on my personal Facebook page, to deal with this mixture of politics and religion and this refusal to take easy answers and easy ways out, that's enough for some people to say, hey, I I just can't handle that. I was expecting this person to be, you know, uh, he identifies as a Christian, so I can't understand why he's not as, well, I would say bigoted, you know, just ravenously anti-gay or, uh, in many cases, opposed to people of different races interacting and getting along. It's problematic. The other example that I'll use is an example that's current events here just very, very recently The NFL has come out with, again, a kind of a ridiculous policy approach that, to me, their their standard on the national anthem, the side the NFL has chosen to take there, is consistent with what some of the NFL fans that I interact with online have said. You've got two camps that I would describe, and I'm taking sides myself, which I freely acknowledge, as people who listen, who pay attention, who say, hey, that individual who I think is just kind of an ordinary, everyday quarterback, but capable of starting in a Super Bowl, which is axiomatic and tautological even, because he did start in the Super Bowl, is engaging in some really unusual behavior, and I wonder why. As opposed to, he shouldn't be allowed to do that. Well, I'm going to make a judgment about whether I'm okay or whether I agree once I've asked the questions and learned what it's all about. I'm going to use my two ears and my one mouth in appropriate proportion and do a lot more listening than I do speaking, especially early on and especially if I don't understand what's going on. It's not like Colin Kaepernick and other people have been unwilling to answer very simple questions about what is the point you're trying to make. They keep getting asked the question and they keep answering the question and people who refuse to listen or don't want to acknowledge the things that they're saying ignore them completely engage in some sort of selective amnesia, and convince themselves, or at least try to convince us that they're convinced themselves, that this is some kind of anti-American protest of people who hate the flag, hate the military, and hate our country. Taking sides means that it's not possible that somebody who doesn't participate energetically in the national anthem, whether they be kneeling or standing with arms behind their back or refusing to come out of the locker room, whatever it is, that... If I take a side on things before I even hear, then I have no way of interpreting it other than this adversarial nonsense the NFL's put itself in the middle of yet again. On the other hand, I think if you did stop and listen, if you look at somebody and say, okay, I hear you, I am comprehending what you're saying, I am repeating it back to you in a way that is clearly a, a much better level of comprehension than you hate the flag, you hate the military, hate our country. And then my next question is going to be, okay, now that you've got our attention, now what? But of course, that's the whole point. 
No one wants to say, now what, about a shooting in a high school in Texas, or Florida for that matter, or 20 other places so far in calendar year 2018, because now what might just mean that a problem with guns needs to be dealt with with guns, or a problem with privileged, toxic, white male masculinity needs to be dealt with in the area of privilege and white male misuse of masculinity. Or mental health actually needs to be addressed in such a way that maybe we should be giving some of the tax cut back to pay for stuff like that. Because, I don't know, lives are at stake. If you don't want to deal with the consequences of having a real serious conversation about issues, then you deflect and you defer. And you use your bias to pick a side, slap those rose-colored glasses on and say, or red, white, and blue-colored glasses on and say, this issue can only be interpreted in this way. Even if that interpretation is ridiculous in the extreme, even if that interpretation is nothing short of bizarre and absurd. I want to get to the different drummer here in just a moment, because I think a lot of the reason that I picked the different drummer I've picked today is because of, well, absurdity, looniness, literally looniness. But I do intend on the other side to take a look away from a critical eye to the right side of the political spectrum and look over to the left and offer at least some complaints from my own personal experience there, where, again, it's a situation of, have we gone into a situation just as blind as people we disagree with? Because when you eliminate the actual points, the actual bias, the actual color of red or blue, to use that sort of logic, the behavior is the same. I'm only reading my sources. I'm refusing to acknowledge that your sources will ever have anything worthwhile in them. Um, I'm assuming that I'm right before I've even done any, you know, any analysis or proof of the position. And I'm not even going to listen to what you have to say or the questions you're raising because I'm assuming your questions are just an attack. All that sort of thing, you see it on both sides. And what we're lacking is a perspective. Now, I know here lately, I've hit um, the nostalgia that's always been a part of inappropriate conversations seems to have come out more and more lately in The Different Drummer. At least this year, The Different Drummers had maybe more to do with nostalgia, at least more shows running in relative succession to each other that, that are more about nostalgia. Because I've hit nostalgia shows in the past, looking at um, you know the made-for-TV movies when I was a kid a couple of different times. We're talking about the games that I would play with my children. In some cases, dusting off and repurposing the same games that I would have played when I was a kid. And whether it's just an innocent form of hoarding or a really good piece of parenting to try to make sure that that legacy happens, that handoff of things I love being shared and paid forward to and through my kids. I've done nostalgia shows like that before. But if you look here lately, the nostalgia in the form of the different drummer has appeared from the musical director of the uh, animated TV show Johnny Quest to another Muppet. I've named a couple of Muppets before, but just the most recent inappropriate conversations was naming Animal. Might be my favorite Muppet. And now, the man of a thousand voices, the voice, just about literally, of Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons. Our different drummer this week is Mel Blank. <laughs> It's fair to say that when Inappropriate Conversations first started, and I had a list of, call it, a hundred different drummers and more or less a hundred show topics, not always lining up cleanly, so it was probably 
more in combination where I had a topic that was still in search of a different drummer and a different drummer where the topic wasn't necessarily identified right off the bat, but I knew I needed to name this person. Mel Blanc was not on that original list. So I've hit the point in the history of the show where I can't guarantee what a topic might be for me in the months of August and September. That's unusual. Usually by this time of every year in the history of inappropriate conversations, I've had a pretty good idea of what I was going to hit later on in the year. And the very first couple of years had it scheduled out by week, which is why it feels unusual to say that the inappropriate conversations uh, and walk the earth podcasts have become monthly. It's gone from them each being monthly to now maybe some months it's one and not the other. And there could be a point in the near future. It's hard to predict There could be a point in the near future where the content that gets delivered to inappropriateconversations.org on a monthly basis might be just a blog post or just a schedule update. I haven't gotten there yet. I've had podcast content on a pretty consistent monthly basis, but there's a risk there. And one of the ways I know that that risk is real is I'm hitting a different drummer that I probably wasn't expecting to hit even a few months ago. That is in no way an indication that Mel Blanc is unworthy. And uh, part of the reason I feel comfortable naming him is I've got a tremendous amount of respect for people who function in that voice acting career. I've met at least one in person over the years, and I've got other podcasts I listen to where vocal talent is a big piece of that actor's resume. But as a kid growing up, if you look at it from the perspective of nostalgia, and if I do an okay job here of connecting how we learn from the entertainment we consumed and maybe why that makes me just a little bit different from some of the people who've come along slightly after me, my ability to recognize absurdity, my comfort with surrealism, and being not just able, but willing and eager to look at things from different perspectives. I was in a meeting today where I said, I'm way beyond being opposed to an either-or mentality. That's been true for the entire run of Inappropriate Conversations. It's one of the hallmarks of the show is that I find uh, the either-or logical fallacy to be, frankly, deeply offensive. I'm now even more to the extreme of of looking for the both-and or the mini-and and finding it deeply problematic when I'm not getting what I want. Well, Mel Blanc has the distinction of being the voice of a great variety of the programs that I enjoyed the most as a kid. I'm going to Wikipedia this a little bit, talk just somewhat about how I would have experienced him from which shows, But before I even get into the list and hit some of the things that I think most people are going to say is obvious, anybody my age who uh, has any working understanding of Looney Tunes is probably already connecting characters to the name of Mel Blanc and the title, The Man of a Thousand Voices. But it wasn't just that. He also had a career with uh, Hanna-Barbera and elsewhere. So let's see what Wikipedia has to say, because I'm pretty sure they're going to start off with a pretty good list. Mel Blanc was an American voice actor, comedian, singer, radio personality, and recording artist. After beginning his over 60-year career performing in radio, he became known for his work in animation as the voices of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wild E. Coyote, Roadrunner, and the Tasmanian Devil, and that is just looking at the combination of Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons from what we might call, or what Wikipedia calls, the Golden Age of American Animation. He voiced all the major male Warner Brothers cartoon characters, except for Elmer Fudd, whose voice was provided by fellow radio personality 
Arthur Q. Bryan, although Blank would later voice Fudd as well after Bryan's death. He later voiced characters for Hanna-Barbera's television cartoons, including Barney Rebel on the Flintstones, Mr. Spacely on the Jetsons, and he was also the original voice of Woody Woodpecker for Universal Pictures and provided vocal effects for Tom and Jerry cartoons, which were later directed by Chuck Jones, working for MGM. So, with this kind of resume, it's easy to forget that in what's called the Golden Age of Radio, Wikipedia cites him as being a frequent performer on programs like the Jack Benny and, uh, and Abbott and Costello shows, working with Burns and Allen and others. So, Blank, born in uh, 1908, lived 81 years, smoked 72 of those 81 years, and would eventually succumb to um, smoking, allegedly smoking-related heart issues. So, one of those things where, yeah, smoking will compromise your health and will kill you. For some people, that, that death from the act of smoking can come much, much later. Let me just drop a couple of other references on the Hanna-Barbera side. Because when I was mentioning Hoyt Curtin a few months ago as a different drummer associated with Johnny Quest, Hanna-Barbera was the focus there. And as much as I love Looney Tunes, I probably have just as much love for Hanna-Barbera. In addition to uh, Barney Rubble on The Flintstones, he also did the voice for Dino the Dinosaur and other cartoons, shorter form cartoons in some cases like Secret Squirrel, Speed Buggy, Captain Caveman, Wally Gator, and The Perils of Penelope Pitstop. For people who've listened to a lot of these inappropriate conversations and have seen the use of promos sort of evolve over time, one of the promos that I played in the very first year or two of the show was for a podcast called An Apotheosis of a Bombast. And in the promo that I got from them, they mentioned in one of their clips of conversations they'd had along the way, the perils of Penelope Pitstop. When you look at the wide range of Blank's provided voices, it cuts across... Um, nationality, in some cases, with um, unfortunate stereotypical effect, and also gender. I want to get to that in just a moment. Having nodded my hat toward Hanna-Barbera, let me head back toward Looney Tunes, because I think that that's, that's really where, to me, the connection between finding a different drummer for this topic and intentionally avoiding one that would fall on a political side. Nowhere in this Wikipedia article do I have any sense of what Mel Blanc's politics were. It does make some mention of, of his um, parents' religion and his upbringing, but nothing that gives me any clear indication of what his politics were. So I'm not picking the different drummer to align politically with any side, but I am focusing on Looney Tunes for a particular reason, and that reason might be best described with the word subversion. Looney Tunes as a cartoon series did two things, and I'm using Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies interchangeably here, and of course Mel Blanc with um, the roster of characters he was responsible for was directly at play in all of these sort of situations. But there's a couple things that they would do. They would force a different perspective. Um, the hunter as the hunted, for example, in all the interactions between Elmer Fudd and either you know, Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or both in tandem. Hunter as hunted was one of the underlying themes there. And if we watch the shows from a strictly liberal perspective, not only do you see this um, this affirmation of sort of the pointless clumsiness of blunt force masculinity, I talked about this as a concept of macho weaknesses and in inappropriate conversations 45, February of 2011, still just barely in that first year of the podcast. And 
you know, the Looney Tunes lampoon that pretty well on a regular basis. But they also, if I looked at it from a critically perspective on the other side, you know, Speedy Gonzalez kind of breaks through a certain PC barrier that it's politically incorrect comedy at the very least. And at one point, Warner Brothers had chosen to pull off all of the Speedy Gonzalez's cartoons, not showing them on Cartoon Network and elsewhere, out of a perception of a need to be more culturally sensitive. And it was actually outspoken voices from the Hispanic community who said, yeah, we know it's a dumb stereotype, and it arguably is racially insensitive, but they were nostalgic for that representation as much as I might have been nostalgic for you know representation on other, on other uh, Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes types of shows. So you could look at it from one side of the political perspective and say, well, yeah, I, could, I could get upset if I wanted to. I could let myself get rankled over the cultural insensitivity of things like um, Speedy Gonzalez. But on the other hand, most of us as kids growing up were probably exposed to cross-dressing, if not full-on drag, for the first time in our lives, watching Bugs Bunny. Never let anybody who grew up at the same time that I grew up um, say that they've never seen drag on TV, uh, claim that they've steadfastly never spent any time with RuPaul's Drag Race. That may actually be a true statement for their current television-watching consumption. But if they've watched any of the Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes at all, they've seen cross-dressing on their television set before. And, you know, usually with a plot twist and for a reason. But I think if you watch the Looney Tunes cartoons now, again, as I did when I was a young parrot, from a parent's perspective, there are, there are moments which are interesting and revealing and sort of read very different as an adult than they did as a kid. And to me, that's a sign of, of a great work of art, that as you grow and evolve, your ability to interpret and glean from it grows and evolves as well. The other example that I would use is, for most of us, our initial exposure to the operatic works of Mozart and Wagner and others came from Bugs Bunny and Elber Fudd. Things like What's Opera Doc probably exposed at least the musical tropes, if not a accurate lyrical translation, of opera told in a different story. So there's a lot of, again, what I would say is subversive things happening in the Looney Tunes cartoons. And the reason that I value it so much, and I think that it's worth doing a nod to Mel Blanc and perhaps ending this different drummer segment with just talking about Looney Tunes on its own and from its own perspective, is that these shows were designed, even to a younger child audience, to expand horizons, to encourage people to look at things from a different, perhaps unusual, perhaps even surreal angle. And as somebody who considers himself to be a surrealist, I find that to be incredibly valuable and incredibly worthwhile. And if only we could see the world from the eyes of ourselves as children. Not necessarily, although it wouldn't be a terrible thing, if we recaptured that sense of wonder, if everything could once again seem new. But also, if we were looking at it through the perspective of a child almost naturally needing to see things from different angles to comprehend it, because somebody the age I was when I was watching Looney Tunes and listening to Mel Blanc for the first time, I wasn't operating through some sort of rubric that told me how I had to think about things. So often, you see either the pro-life movement or the gun control movement approaching issues in such a way that they might go, either one of those examples, might go to an ex absurd extreme to avoid what seems simple and obvious. 
Because the most important thing is not embracing truth, seeking wisdom, analyzing facts, and coming up with solutions. The most important thing is remaining steadfast, steadfastly and consistently pro-life no matter what, or anti-gun no matter what. Again, just to use a couple of examples. Wikipedia says this about Looney Tunes. It's an American animated series of comedy short films produced by Warner Brothers from 1930 to 1969. I think that's a good way of putting it. It's short films, whether under the name Looney Tunes or under the brand name Merry Melodies. It was known for introducing such famous cartoon characters as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig. We've been through the list because, with the exception of Elmer Fudd, this list is pretty much a Mel Blanc list of voice and sound performances. Looney Tunes' name was inspired by Walt Disney's musical series, Silly Symphonies. They initially showcased Warner's own musical compositions through the adventures of cartoon characters such as Bosco, and after losing him, Buddy. The animation studio rose to greater fame, however, following their addition of directors like Tex Avery and Chuck Jones, and voice actor, our different drummer this week, Mel Blanc. From 1942 to 1964, Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies were the most popular animated shorts in movie theaters. Since its success, during the short film cartoon era, Looney Tunes has become a worldwide media franchise, spawning several television series, feature films, comic books, music albums, video games, and amusement park rides, as well as serving as Warner Brothers' flagship franchise. Many of the characters have made and continue to make cameo appearances in various other television shows, movies, and advertisements. And a lot of those were made with Mel Blanc, and since then, they've been made by people trying to honor his legacy. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. So Inappropriate Conversations interacts in several ways. The one that I think I would cite as the most direct is the email address that I've maintained from the very beginning. Age of the email address is probably obvious just from its handle. I could be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And uh, even though Hotmail is a very old way of doing email, I've started with it and I've stuck with it. I also can interact on Twitter. Um, I'm IC underscore Greg there, where in addition to making posts about both podcasts, Walk the Earth, and Inappropriate Conversations, you could very easily see me there talking about sports or telling jokes. But the one I want to focus on today is Facebook, where I've got a page for both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. These two separate pages give me a way of continuing to post things about upcoming shows and information about the podcast. I do for inappropriate conversations what I call a talkback. Since conversations is the uh, in the name of the podcast itself, when I go back either a hundred episodes or to something topical and post a link to an old show, 
That's just a link that's redirecting through Podbean to the inappropriateconversations.org website. But I do so as a kind of a talkback. Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook gives me a way of doing that as well. But the other thing that it does is that I can share articles and even raise comments and questions about those articles as I work my way down. And I've got a few here that I would use as examples of you know situations where I've posted the article mainly to raise questions about whether or not there's something fundamentally wrong with our interaction on issues. In many cases, issues of life and death where we're unable to come up with solutions or even talk intelligently about the problems because of the problem of taking sides. One example posted uh, just you know during this week that I'm recording is, no, a girl didn't cause the Santa Fe High School shooting. And one of the issues I've got with it is how often headlines refer to the shooter's being rejected by her as opposed to referring to him being someone who harassed her and then later killed her. Just sort of getting the active, passive voice of this crime wrong. Wording it in a way you'd never word it if you were covering something like a bank robbery. You know, the bank didn't taunt that person by having money that didn't belong to him and force him to rob the bank. That's not the way we refer to things like a bank robbery. But I've got other examples that I put up here, and, and maybe... You know, to pick up where I left off before I shift gears and, and maybe refer to examples of this problem from the perspective of how we think and describe religion, an article that basically says President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama have entered into a multi-year agreement to produce films and a series for Netflix. I bet you can guess what happened among the more conservative people in my world, in my social media world, my circles who read this particular article, which I shared the one posted in from Chicago, WGN-TV. I immediately had people who, in a knee-jerk reaction, perhaps unthinkingly, and perhaps even dishonestly, hard to say, declared online that they were now unsubscribing from Netflix. To me, Netflix shares a lot of movies and TV shows from the past that I don't enjoy and don't watch. And they make new TV series and movies, and most of them I haven't watched. I've got a reason to think that some of the ones I haven't watched I might really enjoy. Um, Stranger Things seems like a big gap that I should address. I should be watching that, but I just haven't yet. But even if I decided that, for whatever reason, something like Stranger Things was deeply problematic and I wanted no part of it, would that lead me to cancel my Netflix subscription? Is the logic that there's something so wrong with something on Netflix that I don't enjoy that I would have to drop the format? No longer consume streaming video and movies this way? As if every movie they show has got to be my favorite, and if they show a movie or if they provide a movie that I thought was terrible, hey, I'm out of here. I can't, I can't abide this. No. The irrational response of saying, well, if the Obamas are going to make content for Netflix and I can't watch Netflix anymore, well, there's a bit of a racist, there goes the neighborhood attitude endemic to that. Or if it's not purely based on race, then has our political balkanization become that toxic too? To me, if at some future point in time, the Bushes or the Trumps or somebody else begin making content for Netflix or have shows they've previously produced, in the case of Donald Trump, available on them. I can't imagine making a decision on whether to be a Netflix subscriber based solely on whether Celebrity Apprentice is available in any given month or quarter or year versus another. And yet there we are. 
great example of what I'm talking about. People who are so obsessed with taking sides that something that actually doesn't impact them at all could lead them to flee in terror? I kind of had to dig deep a couple of weeks ago and do some soul-searching and decide how did I want to respond online to this latest shooting, the one in Santa Fe, Texas. And I really initially decided, well, what I want to say, I just can't say on my own page. Because I don't want to create the drama. I don't want family members, perhaps, even deciding, okay, that's the last straw. They've had enough of me. So I shared things initially on Inappropriate Conversations. It's one of the things I I do, is I'll use the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations to express ideas that might just be a little bit too much for Grandma and Grandpa to consume. In this case, I decided I would paraphrase or redirect and kind of say the same ideas in both cases, but the post I'm referring to is one that was just frankly quoting a guy named Jordan on Twitter. His quote says this, If I ever die in a mass shooting, you have my permission to politicize the F out of my death in order to save someone else's life. That's not a suggestion. That's an order. Part of the reason I paraphrased when I put it on my own page was I didn't want the use of the F word to be the only issue. I wanted the conversation to be about the concept that maybe some of the people who have been mowed down in school-related shootings, if the surviving kids in Parkland, Florida are any indication, then maybe they wouldn't mind this uh, this scary idea of a mass shooting becoming politicized in one way or another. And here this person named Jordan is basically saying, yeah, go ahead, politicize it all you want to. Because if his death, or in my case, if my death, were used to finally create the conversation that addresses the issue, then that's a value. It's probably not worth it, but it's a value. I mentioned that I would talk about the other side of the political spectrum, and I'm just going to use one quick example and see if it takes me somewhere else, and that's this. That far too often, I become aware that my Christianity is a hurdle for a lot of people. Many of my friends, many of the people I interact with online now on a regular basis, the fact that I am a person of faith was something that they had to overcome. And I know for a fact that I've interacted online with some people where that process of overcoming is still happening, or maybe that process of overcoming will will never happen, that there is no amount of trying to maintain a distinction between being a Christ follower and what is so often you know, designated as Christianity today, that there's no distinction I can make that that in and of itself is a bridge too far for some people. And yeah, I'm just going to call it like I see it here, I think. And, and perhaps, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get things a little wrong. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but I think the reach of this show has in some ways been impacted negatively over the years because the fact that I'm a Christian doing this podcast is a non-starter for a lot of folks that they have taken that side, that only if this person you know, were to renounce his faith or walk away from Christianity, could I give him the benefit of the doubt and say, he belongs right there on my podcatcher side by side with all the other shows. I listen to a variety of shows on my podcatcher, including a lot of ones that old friends of mine would be aghast that I hear and that I share online on a regular basis. That's fine. That's their problem. But I'm well aware of the fact that on the other side of the political spectrum, I've got some folks for whom I am, at the very least, a delicately acquired taste. 
and a little bit hard to manage because you just never know when that guy's going to talk about Jesus or quote scripture. And even though I'm just as critical of the religious right for exactly the same reasons and in exactly the same way, and in maybe in some ways I'm a more valuable ally from being a voice within that camp as opposed to somebody who's just shouting on the street across the front yard, so to speak, I think it is an impediment. And it's the same exact thing. If I see an article from a a source that a politically conservative friend of mine enjoys, that I'm known for the fact has gotten so many things so wrong over such a period of time, I will view it with great skepticism. But I'm not going to discount an entire piece of extreme right-wing propaganda as propaganda without at least taking enough of an effort to confirm that, yes, it's more of that nonsense. If somebody on a politically conservative website says something true, it still gets to be true, despite the fact that it may come from a website that spends most of its time peddling conspiracy theory racist nonsense, that truth is truth no matter where it comes from. It just does require a little bit more effort, that you don't have that trusted source approach Those of us who've used Microsoft Office products for some time, especially Microsoft Office products in this uh, cloud computing era that we're in today, probably understands this notion of trusted source, that there are emails you can receive or files you can be given in a workplace setting where you can basically designate that that's a trusted source, that this file that comes my way once a quarter, that's a quarterly activity report, always has the same name, comes from the same user, using the same template and format as the one before it, I can cut through some of the um, enable and approval steps by just saying, nope, I trust that file. And I I don't necessarily think it's problematic for me to say there are certain resources that I'm going to give a ton of the benefit of the doubt because either their opinions in the past have stood up to scrutiny or the examples that they've used have consistently proved factual. But that's a different thing than saying, hey, I only trust this source on this issue. Anybody who only consumes MSNBC and nothing else, or only consumes Fox News and nothing else, is making a mistake. I'm totally sympathetic to anyone who says, hey, there's only so much of that crap I can stand, regardless of which cable news channel I'm referring to. It's true both ways, right? But anymore, we've come to the point of people saying that they don't trust this particular channel because the President of the United States has told them that the entire channel is somehow fake news. Ridiculous. It's an example of taking sides, and taking sides taken to such an extreme, that it becomes a pungent form of toxicity. It is literally poisoning our entire culture, and has, in my opinion, led some people to decide that the fate of the Republic doesn't matter, or fidelity to the U.S. Constitution doesn't matter or what Jesus said and taught and, frankly, commanded us to do, doesn't matter. This is highly problematic. And I see it on both sides of the political spectrum. And I often have to be careful that I don't see it in myself. That I need to have that sort of Looney Tunes mentality that is willing to look at characters from more than one perspective. Is the Tasmanian devil a you know, protagonist, antagonist, or is he just some sort of chaotic neutral? And being willing to take that in based on one show to the next. 
it's possible that there are some programs where Daffy Duck is a good guy and some programs where Daffy Duck is the problem. And you can't pre-decide that based on some decision about the character, whether that be the color of his feathers or what he did on the last episode or the last short film. That's what we need. A perspective, a maturity, and a willingness to consume broadly, keep what's good, and toss out what's proven to be false. It is good to accept the fact that Colin Kaepernick wasn't just engaging in some petulant teenage tantrum. He had a point he was trying to make, and if you study it at all, you know he put his money where his mouth is. If you asked him, okay, now what? He's going to have an answer to that question. He's going to have things he thinks we ought to be doing, things that he is willing to participate in, and things that perhaps we could participate in as well to make our country a better, more unified place in a more healthy and wholly sustainable paradigm. And that's the part you keep. The part you throw out is the part that says, hey, this whole star-spangled banner thing, this whole Pledge of Allegiance thing, is all just for show anyway. We just need everybody to play along and pretend to be patriotic, even if you're not feeling very patriotic right now. Because the genuine state of our nation and the problems we're trying to address and solve are completely unimportant. What's most important is that you stand and you put your hands where your hands are supposed to be and you salute when you're supposed to salute and you play along. And maybe when the song's over, you can do some high kicking and high stepping and exit stage left with nothing more than a that's all folks to show for it. Thanks for listening. of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.